Welcome, one and all, to another jam-packed edition of the George Sanders Show. Today, celebrating uh, Sean's favorite holiday, Veterans Day, we're going to be discussing a couple of films set during wars in the early 20th century. Uh, the Big Parade, which just came out on a new Blu-ray, and uh, The Red and the White. Uh, we'll also be discussing our Cinema Central World War I films, uh, and also the career of Hedy Lamarr, who would have turned 99 this week. Um, hi, Sean. How's it going? Uh, it's going all right. Yeah. I've got some good news and some bad news to start off the show. Oh, yeah? Which one do you want first? Uh, the bad news. The bad news is, and I promised this last week that I would watch a Burt Lancaster movie before the next episode of the podcast. It's not my fault that I didn't get to it. Really? But, yeah. I requested this. You, you had ten days. I, I know. It, there were situations that arose that stopped me from getting it. Basically, I moved from one branch of the library to another in this past week. And I had Sweet Smell of Success on its way to my old location, and it arrived there after I had left, and so I had to send it to the next location. And so it's now there waiting for me to pick it up. And I will watch it this week, I promise. You know, I have it. Why didn't you give it to me last week? I didn't think of it. (laughs) The good news is, new Melvin's album came out this week. Mm. It's good. Yeah? Yeah, their cover of 99 Bottles of Beer on the Wall. You wouldn't think it'd be good, but... uh, they kind of nail it. The new MIA album came out last week. Yeah. And, uh, Does it have a cover of 99 Bottles of Beer on the Wall? No. Uh, it was, uh, in that way and in several others, disappointing. <laughs> I am greatly looking forward to the new uh, Hilary Hahn album, though, that comes out this week. It's uh, set to arrive. Does it come with glossy posters of her that you can pin up on your wall? I think there's actually, like, special edition that does come See, with I a, a glossy poster of Hilary Hahn, but... Uh, but no. Well, speaking of Hilary Hahn, what, what are we listening to music-wise this week? Uh, we're listening to Fritz Kreisler, who's an early 20th century violinist. Uh, and uh, we're listening to recordings that were made around the time that the movies are set. So I mean, we've got two of them, one from, I think, 1915, and the other, I think, is 1921. And so they're really, like, scratchy and, and uh, awesome poor recording quality, <laughs> which, which I absolutely love. I love old uh, classical recordings as well. Yeah, I'm all about it. Well, uh, let's go back in time now to uh, the big parade then. Let's get this party started. Okay. You still haven't watched the Johnny Toe movies I gave you months ago. That's not my fault. I've... It's never your fault. 
I no. What's funny is I've had tons of movies at home. I've had like um, twelve, you know, various things from Scarecrow from the library stuff that you've loaned me. Um, and you know, I when I'm not watching stuff for the show, I'm usually watching movies with Lindy, my girlfriend, and. Well, I do this thing where I hold up two movies at a time and she picks one or the other and then I go through and whittle down to the final one that she wants. She never wants to watch the Johnny Toe movies. She doesn't want to see them, you know? I know she would like them if she saw them. She just doesn't want to. Yeah, Kim's watched a lot of the Johnny Toe movies with me. She watched Happy Ghost 3 with me last week. Yeah. And she liked it until she fell asleep. I think I need, I think I need to just spring one on her without her knowing. You know, I think she has these, you know, misconceptions of what it's going to be like. Um... And, you know, that's the problem. But women. <laughs> Good thing she never listens to this podcast <laughs> or I'd be in the doghouse. All right. So let's talk about the big parade. <laughs> uh, the big parade. Okay. So the big parade's from 1925. Uh, it's directed by King Vidor. Big name uh, in the early, you know, Hollywood era. And the film stars John Gilbert as kind of this idle, rich boy um, who has no interest in the war effort, doesn't want to join... Um, until he actually comes across a big parade where pals that he knows are going down the street and everybody's cheering them on because they're going to go fight the good fight and stuff. And uh, peer pressure kind of takes over and he joins uh, the fight. Um, and then the film also shows um, people from other walks of life, too. There are two guys that kind of, the R2-D2, C-3PO of this movie, uh, are slim and bull. You know, one's like a... Um, Tobacco chewing, you know, goofy looking guy who's always looking for a good time, and you know, they're they're more working class gentlemen. But it kind of follows these guys as they leave the states and go to the front. And uh, actually, most of this movie, even though it's considered a war picture, there's not a lot of battle stuff until the end of the film. Uh, there, most of this movie is really a love story, um, and it's an interesting love story too because Gilbert. He meets a French girl, and uh, he he kind of falls for her, but he's got a girl back home, and he's kind of conflicted about that, and it was very interesting to see that kind of thing going on in a movie from 1925, where he's he's kind of, you know, betrothed to this one woman, but he's uh, not into her, <laughs> and he's kind of like, what am I going to do, what's the, you know, what's the situation here, and it resolves itself at the end, but anyway, um, was this the first time you've seen this movie? No, I saw it. Uh, I saw it a couple of years ago um, when my first kid was born. Uh, my wife and I spent a lot of time just sitting on the couch because we didn't really know what to do with the newborn. So. <laughs> like you weren't sitting on the couch long before no, the baby not, was not born. Really, because you know, we, neither of us were working and we didn't know what to do with the kid. And the only way we could get her to sleep was was by eating. So we'd just sit there and, and sit on the couch, and she'd eat, and then fall asleep mm -hmm. and we'd fall asleep and wake up and uh what i would watch were were silent movies that i had saved up over the years on 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 the the tivo recorded off of tcm because the silent movie with just the musical score wouldn't be too shocking and and my wife and and the 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 kid could sleep through them right so uh i watched this movie around uh that time in this kind of haze of lots and lots of silent movies and very little sleep so i didn't really remember it all that well so I was, I was very happy to revisit it, and uh, it is. It's it's great. It was it was a huge hit at the time. Uh, I think it's the highest grossing silent film of all time. Yeah, which is which is kind of weird to to think about. Like war movies like this aren't aren't such big hits nowadays. But in 1925, coming just very shortly after the war itself, 
there'd never been a war movie like this, and pretty much every subsequent war, war movie owes something to the big parade. So uh, I don't know where. So let's start with the the structure, which is which you mentioned. Uh, the movie's two and a half hours long, and it, it's it's really kind of interesting formally, and it's got like this fifteen minute prologue, and then it's got like a ten minute epilogue at the end. And the rest of the movie is split between one long section in this town in France where Gilbert meets uh, the French girl uh, played by Renée Adoré, uh, Melisande. Uh, and that takes up about an hour and, and 20 minutes or so of running time. And then there's the, the war section where they leave the French village and, and they go off to war, and that takes up 40 minutes of running time. So it's... Twice as much time is spent on the romance as on the actual war. Well, and I think I did a little research into this after watching it, and I think initially there was even less war in this, and they actually went back after Vidor had finished the film and added more of the war stuff um, to bulk it out, and they, you know... Yeah, the the effect is really weird as, as you're watching it because you you rent this movie from 1925, this great war movie that you've heard about, and you watch it for 90 minutes before a Anything gun ever happens, gets fired, yeah. mm-hmm. and you're like, "What what is going on here?" But then when the war scenes start, they're so good, they're, they're so, so dramatic, and they're so good. just kind of you know terrifying and chilling, and and it's very very modern. Yes, the, there's one shot which I'm sure everybody s- sticks to, but there's the shot of them advancing through the you know the forest, yeah. and it's just super creepy, and and it's it. I, I was just floored by it because this is why silent film is so awesome. Is you see them walking forward just towards the camera, and since you can't hear the effects of gunshots or whatever, you just see guys in like you know they're kind of in rows or whatever, and you see a guy like further back just tumble over, and the, and they just periodically guys are just falling down as these guys are advancing and it's super cool yeah. i mean it's really amazing Vito will have these long tracks where he follows along with the the men as they're advancing first through the woods and then and then later on through the the trenches that uh, you see the same thing in uh, uh stanley kubrick's paths of glory which is another world war one film uh but you know kubrick is, is working 30 years later with like you know fancy you know, modern technology, whereas whereas King Vidor is basically making it at, up as at, at the dawn <laughs> of of kind of commercial Hollywood cinema. Yeah, but that uh, that act of marching and and the parade, like it, it's right there in the title, and there and there's uh, there's so many scenes of of people marching of of parades in the film. It's like the the structuring metaphor for the movie, like like. Uh, uh, Gilbert initially gets caught up in the the patriotism of of the uh, the parade off to war, and then when they actually get to France, they're like marching into the French village, and then you see the reverse of that later when they're marching back out, and there's just long line, endless line, this vast like landscape shot, and this this road just goes straight off into the horizon, and it's just all of these people marching off to war, and then you get them in the. Uh, in the actual battle sequences where it's just men marching forward into gunfire and it's, they're like certain to get killed. Mm -hmm. And it's just the kind of the idiocy of world war one. And, and the whole war is, it's gotta be up there. Like with the, uh, the stupidest wars in history, (laughs) especially if you go into like the actual human cost of the war. Mm Mm-hmm. 
then you know world war ii it's like supposedly the good war like you stop hitler or or you know japanese fascism or whatever there's none of that in world war one it's just let's go off to war and and the film kind of subtly critiques that that kind of ideology because we get uh we get the the horror of, of these men just basically forced to march to their deaths contrasted with this kind of romantic vision of war that you get in the home front, not just in the parade, but from uh, Gilbert's family. Like his father is very proud of him. and For his, the first time in his life. Yeah. <laughs> and his girlfriend writes him this, this, uh, this letter while he's uh, in the French village. And, and she, she has this like ridiculously romantic vision of war. And, and uh, one of the lines is, uh, I, su- I suppose the fragrance of flowers fills the air of your beautiful surroundings. Right. When, you know, the scene before we've seen him uh, shoveling manure, yeah, you know, for I, I, 10 I, minutes. A on giant end. pile of yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that, that, that's the, the romantic ideology is kind of what, what lies at the root of World War One, and you just see it get mowed down in these these endless marches. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a very very blatantly uh, anti-war film. I mean, it, you know, it's in which you don't expect at that time, really. I mean, I think that there's a lot of subversive elements to this movie. You know, in the big picture of yeah, this this movie really does not sell patriotism very well. It doesn't make you want to go fight the fight um, and stuff. Well, it's, is King Vidor, um, I don't know, you haven't, you haven't seen any other I've King seen Vidor? the Kansas sequences of The Wizard of Oz. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Vidor is, is a, a fascinating director to me politically because uh, in uh, 1928 he made The Crowd, which was is one of the more famous silent movies and it's all about this, this guy who... who you know, can't succeed in society. It's like one part of, of this mass. Uh, and then he made a sequel to that called Our Daily Bread, where the the same character has like gone off to a farm in the middle of the, the Depression. And it's all about like the farmers working together as a collective in order to like irrigate their fields. Mm-hmm. So it's like this pro-collectivist message, whereas the crowd had been pro-individual and anti-crowd. And then... You, Less than 20 years after that, he makes uh, uh, the adaptation of Ayn Rand's uh, The Fountainhead, yeah. which is completely anti-collectivist and, and pro-individualistic. Well, so do you I, think I, that he has, I mean, do you think that he's just following stories? Like, do you, do you think he has an agenda? Yeah. That he just, and, he's a slippery and I think it's I think it's the, that kind of, the individualism and the, the fear of crowds, because it's, uh, it's the systemic nature of crowds that, that Vidor is critiquing. It's it's the, mm-hmm. the kind of patriotic crowd that, that gets Gilbert caught up in the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the difference with the, the community in our, late, our daily bread is that it's more a community of individuals. It's not like mm-hmm. a top-down collectivization. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more from the grassroots mm-hmm. up. But it's still, it's an odd uh, uh, balance he strikes between between Ayn Rand and, and anarcho-socialism. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they have more in common than we'd like to think. Well, you know what's also really interesting is the, uh, the screenplay or the title cards in this movie, um, they get away with some stuff that's pretty funny. Like, there, there, there are a couple of um, sections where... They'll be they'll be showing the uh, soldiers marching and chanting, and they they'll skirt like swearing. You know, like I can't I didn't write down the whole thing, but they'll write so you'll, you'll never get rich, you son of a gun. <laughs> 
it's uh, you're in the army now. Yeah, you're in the army now. yeah. You'll never get rich, you son of a gun. You're in the uh, army now. <laughs> but but there's the quote that I wrote down, which I used in my letterbox review, that I think is really awesome, uh, and it comes at the beginning of the movie when they are um, seeing the first big parade, and it says, What a thing is patriotism. We go for years not knowing we have it. Suddenly, martial music, uh, native flags, friends cheer, it becomes the greatest emotion, you know? And, it's, and, and it shows in that section, which I really love, is uh, Gilbert standing there looking at the crowds cheering his friends on, and there are these little subtle shots that Vidor throws in of him just tapping his feet. You know, mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, he's getting hooked. Right. Yeah, you know, he's, he's getting really getting diving into this thing. There are lots of shots of Gilbert's legs in the movie. And it becomes apparent by the end what they're leading up to. But uh, it's, it's something you notice with, uh, in the scenes with, with him and Melisande. He's, she's like constantly like retying the, the wrap on, on his boots. Uh, and then when he, when he leaves for the front... She's like frantically searching for him through the crowd and she can't find him. But when she finally does, she grabs onto his leg and she just hanging on to his leg as he goes off. When he gives her a shoe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, he's like throwing like keepsakes at her. He like throws her a watch and like a, a necklace and then he throws her a shoe. Yeah. So there's all this like leg imagery that's really kind of funny and, and it takes a, a dark turn at the end of the film. But, uh, the the romantic scenes are are really romantic. Like there's this one setup that that Vitor uses a few times. It's this kind of like idyllic, uh, really pretty location that's like framed by trees with a little pond out in the distance. And you see it in the daytime as as the two meet, and then you see it at night with like the light reflecting off the water. It's just it's really really pretty. And there's a there's another scene. Um, where Gilbert is at this, uh, uh, he's gone to her house and there's like a meeting of uh, French patriots there and they're like reciting letters from the front and singing La Marseillaise. And uh, at one point, Melisande starts to pour out water for all the guests and it reminded me of uh, the scene in, in Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. Which I haven't seen that. Uh, there's a, a central sequence in there where where the uh, the people who've been out all night looking for this, this dead body go for... Uh, go for a break to, to eat a meal in this uh, small like farmhouse and the power goes out and this uh, angelic looking woman pours drinks for each of them as they wander around and they're all like in awe. And it's a, there's a similar uh, concept in Once Upon a Time in the West where at the end of the film, Claudia Cardinale's character like kind of fulfills her purpose in the community by serving water right. to the men working on the railroad. Right. So just this idea of, of women serving water to men who are doing you know dangerous things. I don't know that that really means anything if it's just like a, a weird rhyme or a coincidence, but I thought it was. But striking. you picked up. On I thought it. it was striking. Yeah. Well, and she's striking too. I mean. You obviously side with Gilbert's uh, love here, you know, because the girl that he leaves back home is, uh, you know, very bland, and she ends up, you know... Well, she, she gets no characters. Well, I know, I know, I know, but I'm just saying, um, Melisande, you know, she really is a character, you know, she really, she, she isn't just eye candy, or she's not just um, a pretty face, you know, like, she, the, she the film focuses on her a lot. You know, which is great. It really builds, you know, this relationship between the two of them. Yeah, there's the, uh, and the, in the epilogue of the film, she's, she's reintroduced with this title card. It's like the women of France. And then it shows her and her mother plowing a field, mm-hmm. which is again, the kind of collective agrarian work as, as an ideal in, in Vidor. Um, 
the the interesting thing about the one of the interesting things about the relationship with 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 Gilbert and Melisande is that they don't speak the same language at all. He doesn't speak any French. He doesn't speak any English. Uh, there's a hilarious joke where he like catches a frog. And, and he says, you yeah, froggy, yeah. you froggy. And she's like, what? <laughs> Not a frog. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's, by the way, guys, uh, not the way to win a girl's heart. Yeah. <laughs> Comparing not... her to a frog, especially if she's French. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a, a, a kind of dark parallel to that, to that kind of lack of communication in the, in a later scene where, where one of Gilbert's friends has been killed and he like flips out and goes like rampaging through the t- trenches and he shoots the German guy and ends up in like a foxhole with him and he's going to like bayonet him, but then he decides not to. Uh, and as the guy's dying, he like gives him a cigarette and, and again, they don't speak the same language, but they're still like kind of able to communicate this, this basic human feeling, which, uh, it could, you could do that in a sound movie, but I think it, it, the silent nature of it adds a bit more like you don't need the verbal communication in order to get across these ideas. Oh, absolutely. What do you think of, uh, you know, the film spends a lot of time with him and her, but it also dedicates a lot of time to Bull and Slim his uh, his buddies and there's actually kind of a heart-wrenching moment with bull where he doesn't you know he it shows all of these guys getting uh their letters from home you know and the, the sergeant is just throwing them out into the crowd and everybody grabs them and someone grabs bull's letter and and he is like like just completely devastated by the fact that he doesn't have this like that's the only thing he's clinging to you know is is word from home and and getting this letter, and he ends up getting into hot water over uh, trying to get it back or whatever. But uh, I thought those characters were really, you yeah, know... Yeah, I mean, they, they function as, like, comic relief roles and as, like, contrast. Like, we identify with the hero, who's the upper-class John, John Gilbert, <coughs> and then there's, like, the lower-class kind of clown figures. But they're all given a, a, a depth and subtlety to their characterization, where they're not just comic relief. Well, like and when they really, die, they get really poignant death scenes, yeah. and, and they're very noble and heroic. Yeah, it's. I mean, uh, Slim's death scene is is probably the most emotionally effective part of the film. I mean, he, you know, it, it's it's brutal, and uh, and you really miss the guy. You know, it's one of those. You know, it's like if someone uh, you know killed Goofy, <laughs> that'd be really sad. He, he does look like Goofy. He does look like Goofy. Uh, what do you think of John Gilbert? Because John Gilbert was one of the biggest stars of the time. And I think it was the big parade that, that kind of made him a star. And he, he famously co-starred a lot with, with Greta Garbo. And then the, the, the traditional story is that he failed to make the, the transition to the sound era because his voice was too high pitched and squeaky. Mm. Have you, have you ever seen him in anything else? I don't, he looked really familiar to me when I was watching this. Um, I haven't actually gone through his filmography to, to see. I mean, he's got 98 credits on IMDb, so um, he, he looked very familiar. So he may be in something that I just can't recall. He's in a, a film the next year with uh, also by King Vidor called uh, Bartolis the Magnificent. That's kind of a, a swashbuckling romantic movie that's pretty good. He's like a, a kind of Douglas Fairbanks type, mm-hmm. uh, type figure. Uh, the one sound movie... I. I know I've seen is uh, Queen Christina with uh, with Garbo, uh, Ruben Ramillion's film, and uh, I didn't find his voice squeaky at all. Oh, really? So I don't know. I don't know how the the story got started. Maybe it's you know maybe it's just my bad hearing. 
I think it's more <laughs> likely he had like issues with alcohol or something like right. that. Right, uh, which is like the case with Buster Keaton. I don't really know too much about Gilbert, but I think I think he's he's terrific. He's like, really wonderful. He's, he's a really magnetic performer, and he's he's great in the uh, the romantic scenes. He's great in the comic scenes, and I I love him in the war scenes. Like at, in that march through the woods, he's constantly got this look on his face, like. Like, he doesn't, he never believed that they would actually do any fighting. Right. Kind of like how we got got lulled into this movie that's just like this pastoral romance set in, you know, a French village. He's like bewildered by the fact that they're actually going to have to fight and that people are shooting at him. Mm-hmm. And you see that, that has, how he gradually kind of goes insane until he like freaks out and goes on a rampage right at the end. Uh he sells every every stage. He really of that does. Yeah, you know, in the beginning, he he totally just seems like the you know dandy rich boy, yeah. you know, and then by the end of the movie, he's a completely different person, and he he sells both ends of that spectrum. So I think he's really really good here. So has this? Uh, you should you should see some more King Vidor movies. I know I should because he's he's really one. Of, he's he's you know he started in the silent era, and he continued on through the 1950s. I think his last movie might have been in the 60s even. Um, but he's made a, a lot of great films and I'll, I'll link in the, uh, notes for the show to the, the ones that I've seen, but, uh, the crowd is, 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 is terrific. Are they, are daily bread? Uh, there's, uh, the Northwest passage, which is like an Indian war movie with Spencer Tracy is really, uh, it's really fantastic. Yeah, I, great. I I need to I need to check out more of his stuff. I mean, it's a name that I've heard since I was a kid, and I just you know. And the Fountainhead is hilarious. <laughs> is it is it funnier than Atlas Shrugged Part Two? Yeah, I haven't seen that, but I'm gonna say yes because like I I'm still not convinced that his version of the Fountainhead is not an intentional parody of Ayn Rand. Oh really? Because like she she wrote the screenplay because right. I, you know, and she uh, part of her contract <laughs> was that they, they weren't allowed to change it, right. because that's like the whole point of the Fountainhead is that you can't mess with an artist's creation. So i I think he didn't change a word of her screenplay and just kind of played up how absolutely ridiculous, ridiculous she is. Yeah, that's uh, highly possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but then again, he was like this anti-communist witch hunt guy. So, so there you go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's King Vidor. I'm sure we will talk about him at some further point on the show because he's got a lot of great movies and you haven't seen any of them. <laughs> so I'm a terrible person. All right. With that, like we said, we're going to listen to some Fritz Kreisler. This is uh, him playing his own composition, The Toy Soldiers March, uh, written in 1917. And this performance is from 1921. Thank you. 
remember. You were supposed to meet me at the film forum to see Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, and you didn't show up. Really? Yeah, I think so. What? I've never flaked in my life. <laughs> you do that all the time. <laughs> all right, let's talk about the news. And I actually did some research, so I have a lot of news this week. Yes, you do, yeah. Sean. What do you want to talk about first? You want to talk about the death of Blockbuster Video? Yeah, because, you know, it seems like every week we talk about video stores dying <laughs> on this show. So that's the, the big news is uh, Blockbuster is closing its remaining 300 stores. Apparently there's like a handful of stores that are owned by like third-party third parties, yeah. franchises that are still going to be open. So that Blockbuster name is still going to be out there, thank <laughs> God. You know, you know I love video stores. I always have. I have also always hated Blockbuster. Yeah, me too. Blockbuster was always the video store of last resort. My memories of Blockbuster, and this is almost, I think every memory of Blockbuster is going there on a Friday night and wandering through the aisles until it was time for them to close and not having anything to check out and being like, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, let's just grab this. And then we grab something that's just terrible. Like, I mean, we didn't go to Blockbuster very often. Like, we had other video stores in town. Um, even like the warehouse was better than Blockbuster. Um, but, uh, for some reason, occasionally we'd have to go to Blockbuster and it was just terrible. Yeah. They were, <laughs> they were the worst. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, this is, you know, it's just, a, another part of this trend and, and it's not just in video stores. It also happened to music and, and, and bookstores where these big chains would come along and drive out all of the, the, the local independently owned stores, which, which happened in, in Spokane in the in the early eighties. There were tons of like little tiny video stores and you could go and you know their selection wasn't always all that great. You know, they didn't have a thousand copies of Dante's Peak. But uh <laughs> But, they, you know, they were nice little stores, and, and they were were part of the local community. Like, you have lo- local independent bookstores, local independent record stores, and then these big chains like Blockbuster and Barnes & Noble come along and drive all of the, the smaller stores out of business, and then those big chains become bloated and go out of business themselves. And, then and what we're left with as a, as a community is Amazon. And that's pretty much it because there aren't, I live in, in Federal Way, Washington, which is a, a town of like 85,000 people. There is one bookstore in Federal Way and it's a mini Barnes and Noble. <laughs> you know, you need to move to the city, my friend. <laughs> we got know. bookstores, we got video stores, we got record stores. I don't think there's even a video store in Federal Way. I doubt it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I mean. I think there's like an FYE in the mall. Well, like FYE is still around. Yeah, that might have closed though. I I don't know. I don't. Wow. Get much. Yeah, I remember Camelot. <laughs> I have good Camelot memories. I'll tell you that much. Um, anyway, it's 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 really depressing, and we we talk a lot about Scarecrow Video on the store on the show, and uh, this week uh, Matt Singer at the Dissolve wrote uh, another lament for the the passing age of video stores, in which he talks about Scarecrow and his time working at Kim's Video for a year and. You know, he talks about some, you know some of the things that are great about your local independent video store, and they're great. <laughs> they are. You should you should go and and patronize them as we as we say every week. Yeah, we're 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 gonna put the kibosh on this one of these days. I promise. We're not just gonna implore you to go to a video store every time you listen to this show. So speaking of the death of video stores, uh, <laughs> Turner Classic Movies has launched a, an, a streaming application, which means that you won't. Uh, 
Not only will you not need to rent the movies from the video stores anymore, you won't even need to watch them on cable because you can just watch them on your iPad. Yeah, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, it's it's the same kind of setup as HBO Go, where you do need to still have a cable subscription, um, which is a shame for people like me who uh, refuse <laughs> to have a cable subscription because, you know, until they have the a la carte pricing where I can just get TCM and you know, the MLB network or something. Um, I'm not going to pay for those 700 channels of uh, Duck Dynasty that I don't need. You know what I mean? And so, you know, I feel locked out of that. But, you know, whatever. There are alternate ways of getting things. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of inevitable that those that those apps will be available for sale through, like, a, a Roku or just on your iPad or something. Yeah, hopefully down the line. That you can, like, subscribe to the HBO Right. I mean, obviously, I know why that's not the case, because then people will start leaving their cable (laughs) companies behind. But, you know, I think that's the way it's got to be, because... Um, it's just ridiculous, but uh, no. It's, I mean, if you played with, the, you don't have an iPad, do you? Do you play with the? IPad? I, don't, I don't have an iPad. I have. I just have a phone. But you can watch the. You can stream the movies on a, a laptop also, or your, uh, or just your desktop computer. And uh, it it makes me kind of want to uh, invest that twenty dollars in the cords that I need to to hook my laptop up to my television because I really don't like watching movies on my computer. You should just get Apple TV. That's more expensive than $20 <laughs> in, in, in video cables. It's like $99. Yeah, that's, I'm not going to spend that much. <laughs> All right, what's next? Uh, there's a, uh, this December is the, it's both the 110th anniversary of Yasujiro Ozu's birth and the 50th anniversary of his death. If I remember correctly, he was born and died on the same day. You know who else did that? Ingrid Bergman. Interesting. August 29th, my birthday. They should have made a movie together. They really should have. That would have been cool. Yeah. Anyway, there's a there's a couple of uh, of Ozu series going on on uh, in in two totally opposite parts of the continent. In uh, in New York at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, they've got this uh, really cool series that starts in uh, uh, runs December 4th through 12th, where they're playing a restoration of An Autumn Afternoon, which is uh, Ozu's last movie, and it's my favorite of his. And also uh, Equinox Flower, and then they're playing. They're pairing them with uh, a bunch of movies that were influenced by Ozu. So there's Hoshashien's Cafe Lumiere, there's Claire Denis' Thirty Five Shots of Rum, uh, there's Pedro Costa, Aki Kurosaki, uh, Jim Jarmusch, Stranger in Paradise, my favorite Jim Jarmusch movie. So that's looks like a really Super cool fun. series. And then at the Pacific Cinematheque in in Vancouver. They're doing like an like a, a more traditional Ozu retrospective where they're playing a whole bunch of movies from throughout his career. So it's a it's a good month to be an Ozu fan if yeah. you happen to live in in one of those cities. So I'm that's super cool. I'm I'm excited. I'm trying to think of, of ways that I can uh, go up to to Vancouver. I don't think it's gonna <laughs> I don't think it's gonna happen. You just got back. Yeah, and uh, the the last bit of news that I have is. Uh, uh, the European Film Award nominations were announced today. I got them uh, in the mail from uh, a little email newsletter that that Vandor sends out, which I highly recommend. Keep Speaking of streaming uh, services, exactly. Uh, and uh, a film that that you've championed on the show a couple of times, uh, Blanca Nieves, got nominations for for Best Picture and, and Director and some other awards. Uh, Catherine Deneuve, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, is uh, getting a Lifetime Achievement Award, uh, well deserved. You know what it is? Because she's achieved much in her lifetime. It's the George Sanders bump. Yes, exactly. 
and uh, also nominated for for best documentary is uh, the Missing Picture, which is a film I saw in Vancouver and I really liked a lot. So nice. It's the European Film Awards. Uh, Way better than the Oscars. Well, <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, looking at the other nominees, uh, Blanca Nieves was the only one that, that really looked, looked interesting. Looked well, but yeah, I maybe I just haven't heard about the others. So, well, I'll, I'll, I'll you know. I'll hold out. If Blanca Nieves is, is nominated for something at the Oscars, I'll, I'll applaud that. But it's not going to happen. <laughs> well, speaking of Europeans, our person of the week is Hedy Lamar, who is from Austria. Hot damn! Yeah. And she, uh, <laughs> uh, she's, she's an actress. She started in, uh, her kind of breakthrough role was a, a Czechoslovakian film called Ecstasy. And they kind of made her notorious and, and famous and, and very, very popular. In the early 1930s. And, and she, why was that, Sean? Because uh, she's naked in it. Yeah. Uh, and she went to Hollywood and was uh, a reasonably sized star throughout the 1940s and kind of into the 50s. She didn't have, you know, a huge career. I've only seen four of her movies, but I have... She's one of those uh, one of those actors who, whenever I see, like, uh, that they're... The one of their movies is playing on TCM, I record it, and then hope to watch it some someday. There's a... Uh, Hedy Lamar and Ida Lupino and uh, uh, Gene Tierney all have like the the auto record on TCM thing for me. But the Sean Gilman Golden Seal of yeah, approval. So far, so far, <laughs> I've, I've just seen uh, Ecstasy and uh, Cecil B. DeMille's Samson and Delilah, which is which is okay. She's she plays uh, Samson. <laughs> And a, a couple of King Vidor films, uh, one where she plays a, uh, a Soviet bus conductor called Comrade X, and Ooh. she has an adventure with Clark Gable, and then another one uh, called H.M. Pullum Esquire, where she's the, uh, the modern girl who got away from this rich guy who's looking back on his life. Um, previously on the show, uh, on episode, I believe it was episode three, I did make the statement that Audrey Hepburn is the most beautiful woman on the planet. Every time I see a picture of Hedy Lamar, though, I'm like, you know what? <sighs> Could be wrong, you know? And to top it off, you know, she had a more interesting life than just being a movie star. Yeah, like, she also she, invented cell phones. Yeah, she co-created, you know, the technology that kind of led to where we are now with uh, wireless technology. And it's a really fascinating story. Yeah, uh, she, she basically... Uh, uh, Submarines in World War II had like remote control. Wanted to have like remote controlled torpedoes, but the problem was that the uh, the frequency could get jammed by the enemy, so the torpedo wouldn't explode. So she came up with this this idea where uh, the frequency would would just jump in a predictable pattern, and then and so that would make it harder to jam because the frequency was always changing. So she it would take too the, much too much uh, power to to jam the every frequency. So. Right. So she, she worked with uh, George Antheil, who was a pianist and composer, and they, and they came up with this technology and, and gave it to the U.S. military, who ignored it for the duration of the war. Yep, until the 62 or 3 or something, they used yeah. it on the Cubans. Yeah, and then, <laughs> uh, and then in the 80s, it, it basically became the, the, the basis for the way cell phones work, for how uh, they, don't, they don't jam each other and... Yeah, yeah. And Bluetooth, all that stuff is because of Hedy Lamar. And the interesting, the thing I like about it though is um, that they chose eighty-eight frequencies because they used a piano roll, like a yeah. mechanical piano roll that you'd see like in a saloon or whatever, and that's what they used as their basis for you know 
deciding what string of you know frequencies to jump to, which I think is super cool. So, Hedgelamar, really cool. So, uh, you've only seen Ecstasy? Of, of I've seen movies? Ecstasy, yeah. My, uh, I, you know, I'm, yeah, my stepfather, Robert, who um, I should give a shout out to, he's not doing so well right now, he, um, he actually turned me on to a lot of movies, and he didn't turn me on to Ecstasy, I'll tell you that much, that's kind of creepy. I started that wrong. But anyway, he had this huge collection of like 500, 600 VHS tapes, and there was, you know, three or four movies on each one, and he'd just record off the TCM, you know, whatever was on. And, and I discovered a lot of interesting movies that way um, when I was, you know, in my teens and stuff, and... Um, yeah, I discovered Ecstasy one day, you know, and I think, you know, I was a teenager. I was like, I know this movie. This is the one where she gets naked. You know, but it's an interesting movie. I mean, it's... It's a really beautiful movie. Yeah. And it's it's very much in kind of like the, the F.W. Murnau kind of late silent style where it's very, very uh, expressionistic. And there's not a whole lot of dialogue in the film. Right. And the story is basically she's like a, a young girl who gets married and her husband has no interest in sex. So she's very sad. And then... As she's like running naked through the woods, chasing after her horse who has stolen her clothes while she was bathing, uh, she meets a, a laborer who uh, fulfills her fulfills certain needs, <laughs> and that, that you know leads to the end of her marriage. And but it's it's beautifully shot, and she's really good in. She it. is really good in it. Supposedly, in like the there's there's the two famous scenes that made the film really controversial and really popular when it got imported to the U.S. and and I, I suspect uh, ecstasy is the origin of the idea that, that foreign films equal uh, boobs. Yep, which probably. was Which uh, was revived in the 1950s and is a large reason for the, the kind of art house uh, theater boom in America. Uh, because people didn't go for the art, they went for the naked ladies. Right. Uh, there's the scene of her running through the woods without any clothes, and then there's uh, this kind of orgasm scene where the camera is just focused on her, and you see, like, you know, her the Fits expressions on her face, just on her face. And, and supposedly uh, the director, like, got the reactions out of her by poking her with pins. In her bottom. Yeah. <laughs> just, just off camera. <laughs> Those were the days, you know? Yeah. You know, nowadays, you know, Lars von Trier, he's got this nymphomaniac thing coming out. And he's, There's the blue is the warmest color, blue, which is really you know. controversial for its sex scenes, you know? It's, Go check out Ecstasy. Yeah, it's 80 years old. I'm, I'm sure there's nothing in blue is the warmest color that, that Hedy Lamar didn't do better. That's right. So anyway, so that's Hedy Lamar. She's awesome. She's dope. Uh, let's talk Cinema Essentials now. It's uh, World War One week with Veterans Day. So we're uh, we're picking our Cinema Central World War One film, and have you thought of something yet, Sean? No, I'm gonna go to the bathroom. And okay. One. <laughs> All right, ready? All right. So, so I I'm back from the bathroom, and I have thought of a <laughs> essential World War One movie. But you go ahead and go first. I like that we include you going to the bathroom on our show. It's Only an essential part of the production of this show. <laughs> the show could not happen without it. That's true. <laughs> um, okay, I'll go first. Um, so my pick is uh, Charlie Chaplin's Shoulder Arms from 1918. Uh, it came out shortly before the war ended. Um, and it's an interesting movie. It's uh, like Buster Keaton's Sherlock Jr. It's, uh, it's not quite a feature, but it's also not quite a short. It's about 45 minutes long. Um, and also like Sherlock Jr., most of it takes, uh, takes place in a dream. 
you know, Charlie is a doughboy. He's on the you know front lines, but he dreams of being this hero, and and most of the movie is his dreams of being a hero. And you know, it's a, it's, it's a really solid Chaplin short. You know, a lot of good gags, and you know, he obviously uses the trenches and and all war life, you know, to great ends because he's Charlie Chaplin and he's wonderful at that stuff. Um, Edna Proviance, you know, who is in a lot of his shorts, um, and I think her last film was when his directorial debut, uh, or a feature film debut, Woman of Paris. I think she's great. Uh, and also Sid Chaplin, uh, Charlie's brother, plays the Kaiser, <laughs> which is uh, kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the Chaplins that I haven't seen. It's good. It's, it's, it's funny. <laughs> uh, well, I also picked an, uh, a silent film. Uh, from 1921, uh, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which is the film that made Rudolph Valentino a huge star. And it's, uh, it's another one of those uh, silent movies that I watched with the, uh, with the newborn. So my memory of it is a little hazy, but um, it's, it's from 1921, and it's, it basically starts with this like Argentine family, uh, where this family in Argentina, and it's like the... The, the dad is German and the mom is French or vice versa. Uh, at some point, like the patriarch of the family dies and the family splits up and half the family goes to Germany and half goes to France. And then the war starts. And then like all the sons like see each other as they blow each other up mm-hmm. and keep, you know, changing hands. And, and Valentino plays like the, uh, the most charming uh, of the, of the family. Who How could he not? And he's <laughs> he's terrific. I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen Valentino in a movie, but it, if you watch one of his really good movies like like this or, or The Sheik, it's really easy to understand how you know masses of, of women mobbed his funeral. They were like Hedy Lamarr in ecstasy. Yeah, <laughs> he's terrific, and it's uh, it's directed by Rex Ingram, and and we we're talking about how the big parade was really really kind of revolutionary. Uh, uh, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse was was as well because it's only three years after the war and it's really strongly anti-war and really strongly anti the the stupidity of World War One in in particular and uh, it gives it a, a kind of a, a biblical special effectsy kind of sheen to it which you know may be a little over the top but that's okay because it's you know we'll talk about this in when we get to Red and the White but it's it's really alien to us who have grown up without ever having to fight in any war uh just how insane these years were in europe and just how just absolutely bizarre this these these wars that they were fighting were yeah and uh it's it's really understandable how you would equate it to the apocalypse oh yeah absolutely i mean every time i see a movie like like any of the ones that we're talking about this week you know it the older I get, you know, when you're a kid, it's just like, oh, war, bang, bang, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the older you get, you're just like, this is all insane. I mean, <laughs> the whole thing is just absolutely bonkers. Um, well, that sounds like a good pick. I should check that out. You should. Yeah. Sonny agrees. So with that, let's move on to uh, to our second movie, which is uh, not technically a World War One movie, but really, depending on how you look at it, it's all part of the same conflict. It's set in the Russian Civil War that followed the Russian Revolution that followed World War One, and they're all connected. And the Cossacks were, you know, they never stopped fighting. So You're grasping at straws is, here, Gilman. This is Miklos Yanchos, the Red and the White.
Alright, to start I'm just going to go ahead and apologize to all the, uh, the Magyars and Hungarian speakers in the audience for my <laughs> pronunciation of, uh, of any names associated with this review. I'm not apologizing. I just now realized that the guy's name was, that the C came before the S. For years <laughs> I've been calling him Jansko, but no, apparently it's Jansko. Miklos Jansko. Yeah, so uh, we will do the best that we can. Uh, Speak for yourself. Uh, so this film's made in 1967, uh, and it's part of a kind of a, a series of, of Eastern European new waves that came around in, in the 50s and the 60s in, in Poland and Czechoslovakia, and it's very much in a similar style. And it reminded me actually very much of an of a Andrzej Wadja film, from, who's a Polish director, from about 10 years earlier, but we'll, we'll get to that later. Um, it basically follows... Uh, a, a terrain more than it does any individual character. It's this, uh, this one location by a riverside where uh, the opposing armies, the Reds and the Whites, the Reds are the Bolsheviks and the Whites are the... Uh, the Tsarists. They're not the Tsarists. They say that in the movie. <laughs> my, my history of the, the Russian Civil War may be a little... Uh, in 1919, little... Hungarian communist... <laughs> Aid the Bolsheviks defeat of the Tsarists. <laughs> yeah, that's what IMDb says. <laughs> the way the, the Russian Revolution worked is that initially everyone got together and toppled the Tsar, and then a provisional government was set up. The Bolsheviks were the far left wing of the people that had toppled the Tsar, and they thought the provisional government did not go far enough, so then they toppled that government, and then that was the Civil War. You had the, the Tsarists and the, uh, the kind of middle-of-the-road moderates united fighting against the Bolsheviks. And the whites <laughs> employed uh, the, the lunatics from the, uh, the eastern fridges of the Russian Empire, these uh, crazy horsemen called the Cossacks, who were like, uh, they're basically like the Vikings of the 21st century, or the 20th century, and they would just go around and, and kill everybody. So that's kind of the conflict that, that's going on here. There's the reds and the whites. And uh, it opens just kind of in the middle of, of the battle. And, and uh, Cossacks are, or people on horses are chasing men in, in a river who are trying to escape. And people are shooting each other and you don't know who anybody is. Uh, it follows one character for a while and then it switches to another character and then it loops back around to that original character and then it follows some more people. And this is kind of the pattern of the entire film. It doesn't really focus like a, a clear plot with a character that does this and this and this. Instead, it, it's around the, this community as it kind of shifts from one character to another and we follow them for a while. Uh, it's structured kind of similar to Richard Linklater's Slacker where you will follow one person for a scene and then the camera will go off and follow another person and then another person, except characters keep recurring later in, in the film. And visually, the, the film is structured with, uh, with long takes, these just really kind of flowing, kind of dancing camera movements that kind of match the way the narrative flows from one character to another. They are amazing. Yeah, so it's, it, it creates this really kind of striking effect. Like we talked about the long takes with, with uh, Solaris and, and Tarkovsky, where the length and the duration of the scenes uh, get kind of like hypnotic, kind of lulls you into the spell. Uh, 
uh, Yancho's long takes have a different kind of effect where it's more like a, a Max Ophel's kind of dance, like a waltz like quality to them. Uh, I was blown away by this movie. I really loved it. What, what did you think? I thought it was great. I mean, I don't, I don't, I wasn't blown away. There were a couple little things and they're very incredibly, incredibly minor things that kind of kept it away from being just, you know, me going gaga over it. But, you know, for the most part, this thing is, is pretty darn cool. Um, you know, that camera work alone justifies uh, its stature. Because, I mean, the whole time this movie, that camera is, is, is just, it, like you said, it's waltzing uh, around. And that opening scene, it'll go, it does, it, oh, man, it does this kind of pan. It, like, it, it, it tracks this guy as he's going along the waterfront. And then it goes back. And then goes back again, and then goes beyond where it went before, and then it goes down towards the water. I mean, it's just great, and but it's not flashy, you know. It's not it's not like you know a big crane shot or something where you kind of swoop in or whatever. It's just kind of moving, right? It it doesn't really call attention to itself. It's it's much more kind of uh, realistic. It's like in the service of of creating like a you are there feeling to to the film. It's it's. Actually, it kind of reminded me more of, of uh, the long takes in uh, Ingeborg Holm, which are static, than it did the long takes in, in Solaris. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they let the scene play out. There's no, yeah, there's, there's no, it doesn't feel artificial. Right. Yeah, uh, I'll agree with you on that. Um, yeah, it's just it's just gorgeous. Um, and what also I, I liked I liked what you said of how they kind of focus on different characters and there's not really there's no forward momentum to the plot here there's no you know it's just things and, are happening and that's uh, the two sides are constantly shifting power like like in the beginning the the uh, the one guy who's the uh, the blonde guy who opens the film and then he, and will, he will close the, the film he you you would like think he's the central character but I don't I don't know that any of the characters are actually given names in the film so like if if they were I didn't I didn't catch them they're in my notes as like mustache guy or, <laughs> or blonde guy or slutty girl <laughs> but <laughs> uh, blonde guy is like uh, he's he's one of the Bolsheviks and he's like on the run from the Cossacks and then he makes it back to the Bolshevik camp and the Bolsheviks there are executing Cossack prison or uh, white Russian prisoners and then they end up fleeing and getting caught by by the Cossacks and then the Cossacks are like terrorizing the countryside and then the Bolsheviks come up and they take and chase away the Cossacks and then more Cossacks show up and it's just constantly shifting ground and nobody is ever able to hold power for long and it's there is no forward momentum because the the, the pieces are just constantly shifting and everyone is is getting erased. Yeah and I like I like how He's not afraid to to make you sympathize with somebody and really kind of appreciate somebody and then have them do something really terrible, you yeah. know, especially in the second half of the movie when they're at the uh, the hospital by the river. Yeah, there's a, the the opening sequence is kind of set around this this fort where the Bolsheviks have set up camp and then they get um, chased away by by the whites and then the the second half is set around this this hospital where some of the the Bolsheviks have fled to. Yeah, and. The, I think the one that hit me the most is I'm assuming this is slutty girl that you're referring to. She, um, she she's the one who she initially doesn't want to to help the Bolsheviks. 
And she's like, why do we need to help the Reds? Uh, yeah, and she, what happens is she ends up making out with this one guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Bolshevik. A Bolshevik. Uh, and, and it's really interesting because she says, um, she says something uh, to him, you know, like, I, I want, I want to feel you or something, you know, some, something like that. Um, and then the, the, she says she wants to take her clothes off. That's right. Her. She wants to, she, she, she <laughs> you would remember that. Uh, she, so yeah. So, but then as soon as she says that, like the minute she says that, um, the whites appear and he's got to run and he goes to hide. Um, and they force her, they catch him and they force her to watch as, um, they spear him to death. Um, and so you're like, oh man, I feel really bad for her. But then she's forced then to separate the reds and the whites and, and then the whites kill the reds that were in the hospital. And then when the whites take power again, they kill her because she, or reds take power, excuse me, sorry. It's it's like a peppermint candy in here. Um, yeah, the reds come back and they kill her because she named names and, and you know, it's just brutal. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> forgot what I was going to say. What's your favorite part of this movie? What's your favorite scene? I got one. My favorite scene in this movie is um, some officers go to the hospital and they force all of the nurses to go out into the woods. Yeah, but just the pretty ones. Just the pretty like ones. They go yeah. through and, and pick out the pretty ones and leave the, the uggos behind. And it's and it's really creepy because you don't know exactly what's going to happen. You just think they're going to rape them. You know? um, and there are some... Other scenes that uh, allude to rape, and it's really, it's it's it's, it's disturbing. It's but unpleasant. They but they take these the pretty nurses um, into the forest where there's a band there, and the officers just make the women waltz together, um, and it is the most unsettling thing. Yeah, there's the the, <laughs> the, the, the Cossack captain. Yeah, uh, supposedly they are they have brought him these women, and they make them dance for him and, and he just kind of watches for a while and then, then he, he, turns, walks and he walks away and that's even more disturbing than if he had like picked out one of them or something uh what i was going to say was uh, was about clothes and and that is is one of the major like you know um uh structuring devices of the film is that people are constantly making other people undress mm-hmm. like each side when they when they take a prisoner make them take their their jackets and shirts off and it's not really clear why that is. You know, in Letterboxd, you, you, you called it like a, a game of shirts and skins. I call it, yeah, the deadliest shirts and skins game ever. <laughs> which, which, which it is a lot. Like, like uh, both sides, when they, when they take a prisoner, they'll, they'll make them uh, take their clothes off or, or their jackets off and then make them run and shoot them. Yeah, or or chase them down, or or at one time like Bolsheviks are are told that they have like fifteen minutes to to try and escape, but they've built up walls around the community, so there's nowhere to escape, and like the Cossacks run them down. Uh, yeah, it's really cruel. it's it's really creepy and it's really cruel. And then uh, when when uh, women are first introduced to the story, they're there also to be uh, uh, stripped. Yeah. Uh, the the first one we meet is a farm girl who uh, Bolshevik is hiding in her house, and a Cossack commander uh, comes and, and finds her, starts interrogating her, and makes her strip. Uh, and then there's the the converse in the scene that you mentioned, where where the woman, uh, uh, in order to express love for the the Bolshevik guy that she's making out with, wants to take her clothes off for him. So there's just this idea of, of, of stripping, of taking off the, the, the garment. And the two sides are identified by their garments. The, the whites 
have very like ornate and and shiny uniforms. They're like the rich people, whereas the Bolshevik uniforms are very plain and and drab. So yeah, I don't, I don't know what's going on with with the clothes and with the taking off of clothes. Like it's it's there as a, a structuring force, but I don't, I don't quite see like the the thematic connection to the rest of the film yet. Yeah, well, but it, it, I mean, just on a purely visceral level, it's very um, effective. You know, it you know it it's them asserting their control and 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 yeah, you just see these guys running for their lives, shirtless, sometimes butt naked. You know, just like. Um, trying to get the hell out of there, you know, yeah. and it's, it's very disconcerting and, uh, yeah, it's disturbing. just kind of like the effect of war, just like stripping people down to, to their essence. Uh, there is one character in the film who is heroic. Do you know who that character is? Quiz time on the show. Quiz time on the show. I mean, I can think of a couple of characters that do heroic things. Um, you know, like there's... there are, there are gallant soldiers. Well, there's, so there's only the, one hero. Let me think. Um, I mean, there's the one guy who, near the end, he um, he's uh, he's a red, and they're all running. Um, they're being chased by this plane, and the plane is shooting them. And the, and they um, those are Cossacks, I think. See, I can't keep track of what's going on. Really, no. I think that scene was was those were were Cossacks being chased by a plane. No, because no, because he comes back. No, because he's the guy that comes to the hospital. Oh, does he come back the he's concept? the one that comes to the hospital okay, and makes so her kill that guy. But then he does cruel things, so I can't. It can't be that guy. Who's the, who's the hero? The head nurse. Oh, she's great. Yeah, yeah, and she's 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 not in it very much. She's only got a couple of scenes. She's in the background of a lot. Yeah. and and the uh, initially when the 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 Reds come to the hospital and. Uh, the the slutty nurse is like, why do we have to treat them? And uh, she's like, of course we have to treat them. And she makes her recite the Hippocratic oath. Right. Uh, and then the 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 Cossacks show up and, and ask the head nurse is like, you know, tell us which ones are the reds and which are the whites. And and she's like, we don't have reds or whites here. We only have patients. Yeah. And she is constantly standing up to the authority figures who are threatening her with death if she doesn't name names. And she just says, no, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. No, she's really great. And, and like you said, she's, she's in the background of a lot of scenes. And mm-hmm. her presence is always there. Like, you always see her watching with these, you know, this great intelligence in her eyes, like, of what's going on. But she's not directly involved in what's going on. But she's just, you know, she'll be, like, in the left-hand corner of the frame or whatever, just looking in on, you know, the atrocities that are going on. And, yeah, she's, she's really She's really great. I also really like, there's the guy, um, the mustache guy. Yeah, um, from the beginning. From the beginning. Man, that guy's story is so sad. I mean, he's, he's a very, he's probably the most sympathetic character in the movie because he doesn't speak the language. And he, um, they initially... Yeah, that's, that's an important point is, is a lot of these uh, Bolsheviks are Hungarians who right. have traveled from, from uh, the remains of the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the end of World War One to, to Russia to help fight the, the revolution. But yeah, but they yeah they don't know the language and stuff, and and so he gets captured. Um, but um, the Cossacks let him go because he's not Russian. Um, but then he ends up in he gets, this he line. Gets like he gets caught again. He gets caught again. He's rejoined them. He's, yeah, he gets caught again. Um, and once again, they they let every um, foreigner go. But he doesn't understand that's what they're doing, and so he's stuck in this group of guys that are going to be killed. And then the, the commanding officer sees him and says, what are you doing here? And he's like, I did not understand. And then they're like, well, you're going to die. <laughs> you know, it's like, man, that's brutal. I have a few lines written down. Uh, the one is uh, the guy you were talking about, the, the commander, when the, 
I guess I guess they're Bolsheviks. Yeah, I, I think they I guess are. You're right. Uh, they're not wearing their jackets. Well, I... <laughs> no, they're being chased by the plane. I guess it makes sense that the whites would have the planes and the Bolsheviks would not. Anyway, uh, uh, his commanding officer, after they've all fled from the plane, uh, starts to grab like some of the guys that don't have guns, like they've thrown down their rifles. And he's like, we're going to shoot these guys as an example of cowardice. And, and this guy stands up to him and is like... Well, first he stands in line with them to get, us, to get killed. Yeah. And then he stands up to them and, and says... like, this is stupid. We all ran. Yeah. Which, you know, is like the obvious thing to say. But, you know, again, going back to Paths of Glory, that's what that entire movie is about, is is idiotic commanders shooting people for cowardice when right. they all ran. Right. Uh, and then there's another line from very early in the film where the, where the blonde guy is talking with uh, another mustache guy who's like his, his commander at the fort. Uh, and they're like kind of debating the nature of this war. And it kind of sets up... Uh, what we're going to see as the movie goes on. And, and his line is, a man can fight and still be human. You'll never understand reason, which is contradicted by everything that we see in the film, yeah. is, is the war is constantly turning these people, like that commander who, uh, he'll end up killing the uh, the slutty girl. Well, yeah, he turns into a total jerk. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> uh, it is, it's reasonable, Yeah, but it's not... Humane. Human, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he leads the uh, he leads them in at the end, and uh, and they've retaken the hospital from the whites. But then the Cossacks are coming, and they're like, you know, spread out at the top of this hill, and you see like this this whole cavalry troop uh, below them, and the Cossacks are charging, and he leads them in and, and singing, and in uh, in the big parade, uh, we had seen the uh, the French family as they're like reading the letters, they all sing the Marseillaise. Well, the, the Bolsheviks here sing the Internationale, which is set to the tune of La Marseillaise. Yeah. Well, to, to me, I, this is really nitpicky. I wish they'd ended with that shot of them going down the hill, because I think it's the most striking image in the movie, seeing them. And you see, and the, the, the shot lasts a good minute or so uh, without cutting, where it's at the top of the hill, you see them descending, and then you just see you know, at least three times as many Cossacks waiting for them, not moving at all. And they just slowly go, and then they disappear, you know, beyond a ridge, and then they come back out, and then they just get slaughtered. And it's it's crazy. And that guy, actually, right before that scene, he forces a kiss from one of the nurses, and he says, are you afraid of me? I'm not going to die. And then it cuts to the next scene, and he leads his group to certain death. It's just, it's intense. Yeah. I don't know. I like I like the final scene. It's it's kind of a it's almost like a extra non diegetic kind of scene where where the blonde guy is like posing with the sword. And it's like the cover for like the DVD. Yeah, no, I, it, I, a, I get like, the point cool of that. Image. Yeah, it's fine, and it wraps it around with the beginning. Yeah. it's just that 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 one shot is just so striking that it, yeah. I think it would have been more powerful had it cut right there because I that just kind of you know. But it's a great movie. It's fantastic. Yeah, so this this is the first film I've seen from from Miklos Jansko, and and I really Jansko. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, and I really I I haven't seen hardly any uh, Hungarian movies. Uh, we we both saw Satan Tango at the Film Forum a long time ago, and I've seen uh, the Turn Horse, and those are both uh, Hungarian movies by Belatar, who is obviously very much influenced by by the 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 long takes that that Jansko uses here. Well, he's you know uh, he's still around and yeah. he's still making movies. I mean, he's the, the Homeboy's ninety two, 
Um, and you know, his last movie came out uh, last year. You know, so he's he's still going. Oh, I want to mention the uh, the Andre Wadja film that I, that uh, reminded me of is uh, this movie called Canal, which is from 1957. Uh, it's set at the end of World War Two, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, a bunch of like Polish partisans have revolted against the Nazis in in Warsaw, and they've been like brutally cracked down on by the the German troops, and and they they flee into the sewers, and they have to kind of make their their way through through the sewers under Warsaw in order to escape, and it's a similar kind of. Uh, 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 narrative that kind of it, that lacks a central focus, but just this this idea of of uh, of the the circularity and the pointlessness of, of the conflict sounds great. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> really uh, depressing. I love it. Uh, with that, uh, let's listen to some more uh, Fritz Kreisler. This is him in 1916 performing uh, uh, Brahms' Hungarian Dance in G Minor. Fritz, that's our show for this week, our World War I Armistice Day Veterans Day special. Next week on the show is, uh, you're gonna... I'm taking get, over. ...get all geeked out <laughs> for the, uh, the Doctor Who 50th anniversary. We're gonna talk about one of your favorite movies, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, along with Buster Keaton's The Three Ages. Uh, the Doctor will be our person of the week, and we're gonna pick our Cinema Central time travel movies. Yeah, uh, I'm going to bring my sonic screwdriver. I just got it in the mail. Uh, it's the fourth Doctor one. Super cool. Uh, <laughs> awesome. I'm going to post that picture of you dressed as the Doctor on the on the blog. Do that'd it. Be, be awesome. <laughs> I look awesome. Uh, 
If you are in San Francisco this week, um, actually, if you're in San Francisco any week, you should go to the Castro Theater. But um, this week um, is, well, every Wednesday this month, they've been showing uh, kind of like the Ozu thing you were saying earlier, um, except they're doing it with Godard, where they're pairing a classic Godard film from the 60s with a a film that kind of ties in with it somehow, you know, it came, you know, years later or whatever. Um, and this pick is a double feature on November 13th. You know, I don't love either of these movies. This is kind of a more of eat your vegetables kind of pick. Uh, but I love the fact that they made a double feature of this. Uh, they're going to be showing uh, Godard's Weekend and pairing it with Cronenberg's Crash. Um, <laughs> I think... I think if you want, well, to have, it's appropriate because it's, Weekend has the the great uh, car crash. Yeah, it's yeah. I, I, that's going to be a really interesting night at the movies. <laughs> so go check it out. Uh, my pick this week is uh, once a bit, once again a reference to Scarecrow Video. They uh, they show movies there, and uh, you can go and see them. And next Sunday, November seventeenth, you can go see W. C. Fields in the Bank Dick. Ooh, that'd be fun. Uh, Fields is is some guy I keep meaning to watch all of his movies, but I haven't got around to it yet. But the Bank Dick is one that I have seen, and it is is pretty funny. Yeah, I'm I'm not really well versed in Fields. You know, I've seen some of the classic bits. I've seen the Bank Dick, um, and I think I've seen My Little Chickadee. Uh, and yeah, he's he's a really interesting guy because it, his pers- the persona of him that at least I have in my um, brain is just of this wisecracking guy and a guy, which he totally is, you know. Yeah. Um, and he's a very interesting guy, but he's also, um, you know, he was a vaudevillian. He could juggle. I mean, have you ever seen him juggle cigar boxes? He actually started in silent movies. Yeah. And I, I, I can't imagine that because because so much of, of his star persona is on his, like, particular way of speaking and his wisecracks and kind of talking under his breath and his eyes and... He also had the greatest pseudonym uh, he used on a couple of pictures for the screenplay. Uh, he, he wrote them under the name Mahatma Kane Jeeves, <laughs> which is really funny. Yeah, he has some great character names. Like Groucho Marx had great character names, and then W.C. Fields is also he's, he's right up there. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, go, go to Scarecrow, rent some movies, and even watch a movie. Uh, you can find us at... Uh, at our blog, thegeorgesandershow.blogspot.com. We are on Twitter, at Show, and you can email us, thegeorgesandershow at gmail.com. That's right. Uh, and this week, uh, you know, I talked about at the top of the show, I, I just got to follow through with it. We're going to be playing uh, a track off the new Melvin's album, Trace Cabrones. Uh, you know, ZZ Top had Trace Ombres. This is Trace Cabrones. Uh, it's the Melvin's covering 99 bottles of beer.
Yancho. 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 Nicholas Yancho. Yancho.